0: the financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Well,
1: hello, everyone, and a warm welcome. My name is Chin Hui Eng. I'm Program Director with Toronto Centre, and I have the pleasure of moderating today's webinar. Now, introducing the Toronto Centre, since our founding in 1998, Toronto Centre has trained more than 15,000 financial supervisors from 190 jurisdictions to build more stable, resilient, and inclusive financial systems. And our mission is generously supported by Global Affairs Canada, Swedish International Development Agency, the IMF, Comic Relief, Jersey Overseas Aid, and the USAID. Now, the research that we are presenting today resilience and inclusive financial services delivery during COVID-19 is a topic that is therefore very close to our hearts. This topic is about maintaining financial stability and also promoting financial inclusion, even in the face of the global disruption caused by COVID-19. Now this research report was published in November. It's hot off the press. It's freely accessible on the Toronto Centre website. And we really encourage you to download the publication. And making this research possible is the generous funding and support by Comic Relief and Jersey Overseas Aid under their program, Branching Out, Financial Inclusion at the Margins. And this program is to promote financial inclusion in Rwanda, Sierra Leone and Zambia. So you will see that in addition to the Toronto Centre team on this panel, um, Petronella here and Pang Hong, we are honoured to have distinguished guests from our funders as well as from our partner financial supervisory agencies in Rwanda, Sierra Leone and Zambia. And you have the full biographies of all our speakers today. So let me give the floor first to Jose Morel-Ducos, Portfolio Manager, Financial Inclusion at Comic Relief, to open this webinar with his remarks before I introduce the panelists. Jose, over to you, please.
2: Thank you very much, Xinhui. It is very exciting for us at Comic Relief and Jersey Overseas Aid to participate in the launch of this report. The Toronto Centre has been a partner of ours under the banner of our Branching Out Financial Inclusion at the Margins Program since 2019. During this time, they have trained over 460 officials and other staff from three Zambian agencies in supervision, gender awareness, and environment-sensitive financial sector systems and processes in Zambia, setting the stage for increased financial inclusion and policy environments that are conducive to greater investment, as well as clear and robust standards in financial supervision. The successes reached by their program were part of the inspiration for funding research in this area. Last year, as the pandemic made its way through Sub-Saharan Africa, Comic Relief and Jersey overseas aid, like many other funders, were faced with some very serious questions. How do investors, practitioners, and supervisory bodies survive a pandemic? What are the practical actions they can take to make systems more resilient? What are the most successful strategies? How do we ensure that the communities we aim to reach remain strong during and after a major protracted crisis? This report is part of a growing body of knowledge that seeks to tackle those questions. Seeing a learning opportunity in the pandemic's natural experiment conditions, the team at the Toronto Centre has conducted an in-depth study of the impact of the pandemic in Rwanda, Sierra Leone and Zambia on the delivery of financial services. It is our hope that the resulting recommendations will feed into better, more informed and more appropriate programming, that they can be used as a practical map towards resilience and preparation, and that they form part of an ever-growing roadmap towards the strengthening of approaches towards financial inclusion. We are thankful to the Toronto Centre research team, to all the participants of the surveys, and to the many partners who have made this report possible. And we look forward, as I'm sure you all do in the audience, to hearing from the authors about the insights of the report and what this might mean for the future of financial inclusion. Thank you again.
1: Thank you, Jose, for your remarks. And we are indeed grateful at the Toronto Centre for the support and funding by Comic Relief and Jersey Overseas Aid of our work uh, in Zambia, Rwanda, and Malawi, Ethiopia, and Nepal, just to name a few examples. And we look forward to your continued support to build capacity for financial supervisors all over the globe. So let me now introduce the panelists. Um, First, we have Petronella Chigara, Ditima, Toronto Programme Leader, Toronto Centre Programme Leader, who will present the highlights of the report. And uh, you will see that the link to the report has been dropped into the chat. Then we will call on Ms. Mutomboy Mundia, Director, Market Supervision and Development, Securities and Exchange Commission of Zambia. We also have with us Momo Lansana Sessae. Assistant Director and Head of the Financial Sector Development Unit, Bank of Sierra Leone. And we have Valence Kemenyi, Director of Financial Sector Development and Inclusion Department at the National Bank of Rwanda. So let us uh, start with Petronella who will uh, give us uh, the highlights of the research before we call on the other panelists. So over to you Petronella.
0: Thank you very much Chime, for the introduction and um, uh, good day to all participants and welcome to the resilient and inclusive financial uh, services delivery during COVID-19 report of the study. It's it's a long title. And as has already been alluded to, this research was done in um, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, and Zambia. So what I'm presenting this afternoon, and my colleague Cassie will actually be sharing um, the slides, I'm going to present the highlights of what what we found out. Uh, I'll start off by explaining a little bit um, what made this research different um, in terms of the objectives of the the study. And a lot has been researched about um, COVID. We can move on to slide three. A lot has been talked about and researched and studied about COVID, but in this study, we kind of had a three layer, three layers of exploration. The first layer was to say, how did uh, financial service providers um, in the report you find we refer to them as FSPs, how did the financial service providers, how did they respond to COVID-19, what changes did they make to their um, uh, operations, to their outreach, what changes did they make? And then we looked at how if they made any changes, how did those changes impact the financially excluded groups? So financially excluded groups, we're talking about women, we're talking about young people, the youth, we're talking about rural households, all those people that we almost know were financially excluded. How were those people impacted by the changes that were made by the financial service providers? And then lastly, we said, okay, If these changes were made by the financial service providers, they had an impact on the the target market, on the target group. And what was the impact? That's something that we look at. And then we lastly say, okay, what, what were the supervisory risks that were posed by these changes that were made? So I think what made it different was the fact that it had all these layers put together. So we can move on to the next slide. Um, in terms of uh, the, the the survey, it was done in those three countries, which I've already mentioned, uh, covered Sierra Leone, Rwanda, and Zambia, and the respondents are listed over there, just to show the mix, but just to say that we actually had um, financial service providers uh, providing all s- all financial services from insurance, savings, um, all banking, uh, banking uh, uh, services, microfinance institutions, and then we looked at supervisors and we also spoke to associations. So associations of smallholder farmers, associations of microfinance is a, a clients, the actual, actual consumers kind of um, look, looking at how consumers were responding. We can move on to the next slide. Now I'm going into the findings, what were, what were the key findings? And it's it's a it's a bit tough to summarize a long report in like ten slides. So um, I encourage everybody to then refer to the to the actual um, report. As you can see from this graphic, we were trying to compare what was happening before COVID and during COVID, and which which channels, which delivery channels were being used, especially to reach uh, the last mile. How do we how do we reach the, the, the final consumer? And as you can see, face to face reduced, which is obvious. Uh, but uh, what we found is um, interesting was that, you know, between agents and mobile banking, especially mobile banking. And this is not news. I think there's lots of studies that prove that digital really uh, kind of went up because people were trying to move from the face to face. And they were trying to find alternative channels. I will explain why the agents. It looks like they actually declined, but you know, it's not necessarily that they declined. In some of the countries, there was actually a sharp increase. So this is when you put all three countries together. So the big point to take away out of this is that definitely mobile banking increased across the three countries. Maybe in different in different versions or in different percentages of increase, uh, but as you can see here. 20 percent and 32%. 20% of the respondents people we spoke to they were uh, they actually were using digital before covid but it increased to 32% which is almost a 12 percentage point increase pretty significant. Now I'm going to move on to the next slide and look at um the changes or the differences between the countries. This looks uh, very busy but it's just trying to show the three countries across uh, across the board. So if you look at the first country, Rwanda, just going by alphabetic order, no, no nothing. Um, if you look at Rwanda, you'll find that, yes, face-to-face did decline very significantly and um, agents almost kind of reduced according to, the people that we spoke to, there was less usage, even though they were trying to make sure that a lot of customers move to agents, to agents, you know, know, to be saved by agents. But what actually increased significantly for Rwanda was the mobile banking. You can see it increased from 17 to 36 percent, from 17 percent to 36 percent. That's almost like doubling up. So there was a very significant shift to mobile banking in Rwanda. And I will explain later on why there was um, such a big shift in Rwanda. Then when we move to Zambia, you will find that Definitely, the face-to-face did decline, um, but there was a sharp increase in agency banking. Why? Partly because even before COVID, you can see that forty-two percent of the p of the uh, respondents we spoke to they were already using agents before COVID compared to Rwanda, which was on thirty-five percent of the respondents. So already they were they were pushing um, agency banking, and there was one big bank in the report we talk about this uh, that was really pushing. Smaller banks or smaller units, almost like little, little mini mini banks in the in the villages and in the in the uh, peri urban areas. And because of that, there was actually a big increase in agents. The use of agents. Um, This use of agents also is referred to in other agents as well, even in terms of insurance and other things. Um, But as you can see, also almost a ten percentage point increase for mobile banking in. this is in Zambia. Now, the last country that I'll, I'll, I'll refer you to is um, when we look at um, Sierra Leone. When you look at Sierra Leone, um, the there was a, a decline but not as significant in the face-to-face, not as significant as the other two countries. And I'll explain again why there wasn't that significant um, increase. And agents banking almost declined slightly, but um, there was also an increase in mobile banking. But as you can see, mobile banking is still low. This is to do also with the infrastructure in Sierra Leone, the whole infrastructure around mobile banking. that's the stage at which the country was at. So before COVID and then um, after during COVID, it kind of increased, but it couldn't increase exponentially as in other countries because of the digital infrastructure in the country. Um, I, I, you know, there were a number of changes that were made, um, just looking across and I'll, I'll give a few examples of what are some of the changes that were done. So for example, in Rwanda, in terms of the digital, what were some of the changes that were done, uh, just, you know, facilitating the withdrawal and deposits through digital and making sure that the digital money is really um, expanded. There were a lot of efforts that were taken, even by the government to push for cashless banking. And that's what that's partly why the there was that increase. Um, uh, for for Zambia, the, the, there was a very interesting issue in Zambia, an example that they gave of what they were doing digitally, even things like um, uh, trying to, in terms of client services, making sure that clients can actually sign things, scan them, and send to the bank, things maybe that were not as, as predominant before COVID, or, or withdrawing their um, uh the their their insurance premiums or matru- maturities or investments making investments decisions and sending instructions over the phone there was a lot of discussion during the the study about you know what what was happening around that but i'm just giving you some of the examples of how uh, customer service changed because of digital now i will move on to the as we move to the next slide i will move on to what actually created these country differences? What is it that shaped the country differences? So um, the first thing I will highlight is that for Rwanda, because of um, efforts by the government to to actually go cashless, uh, b- because of that, there was a lot of movement towards. Um, it, there was a lot of movement towards digital, so so the, the the movement was much stronger than in other countries because there was already this drive to go cashless, and it was really heightened during um, during COVID. Um, for Sierra Leone, as I've already said, uh, is that um, because because of the of, of of the infrastructure in Sierra Leone because also of the regulatory environment. They were just passing on some of the regulations around digital banking. And because of that, the uptake to digital was uh, slower. In Zambia, there was a, a higher reliance on the use of agents to limit the face-to-face delivery or to localize the, fa- the face-to-face delivery because then if people are in the same locality, Uh, hopefully they are not importing the virus from elsewhere. Now, in terms of the financial service providers, uh, what what shaped their change, their shift? Some of them shifted very fast, some slowly. Uh, Part of it was to do with the national infrastructure. I've already talked about what was happening in Sierra Leone, but the other issue also was to do with the strategic investments. Where was the institution Strategically positioned even before COVID, um, in some of the institutions, they clearly stated that actually we were already on these platforms. We were already driving these platforms, and the pandemic simply accelerated the use of the platforms, or it actually made the customers uh, do the switch. But the infrastructure was already there in the institutions. The third element that shaped um, the the way the FSPs responded was the support by the financial supervisors. So um, depending on how supportive the supervisors were, depending on the regulatory environment, that's what shaped the way the financial service providers were able to quickly um, uh, change. Mm. Uh, one of the panelists is sending me a sorry, but it's in Spanish, but I can tell it is a, it is a, a sorry. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's in French, actually. Uh, we can move on to the next slide. Now, um, so I've talked a bit about the, the changes. I think the key the key takeaway is that there, there was a big shift to digital, and this is not news. Um, we, we've been seeing it in, in the different countries, even where we, we live and work. And you would think theoretically, if FSPs have gone, if financial service providers have gone digital, then it means they can reach the financially excluded even in, a easier, in an easier fashion, like, you would expect them to be able to just reach the smallholder farmers, to reach everyone, literally like it should be easy because the costs of delivery should be technical, they should be lower theoretically, uh, making it easier. But practically what we actually found out during the study was that because of the low digital and financial literacy among the financially excluded groups, the The financial inclusion aspect did not necessarily jump or leap simply because we have shifted to digital because the fact that people don't actually understand digital made some of these groups even a bit skeptical. I mean, some women in Rwanda were like, what you mean to say I get money from the phone? Like they can't put together a phone and money. Like how do these two things talk to each other? How, how can that even happen? So so the, the, the low levels of digital and financial literacy made it a bit difficult. Um, A lot of efforts have been undertaken in different countries, and the report does give examples and snippets in in text boxes. You'll see that, you know, we refer to some of the examples that were innovative as to how do we deliver digital and financial literacy among the financially excluded to make sure that we also don't exclude them even more the issues around poor infrastructure. So even in Rwanda, issues to do with poor infrastructure, connectivity issues. In Zambia, um, people were talking about, well, I I can do internet banking and I can can use it, but the downtime is so high that it affects my transactions. So as a result, I end up just not using internet banking because of the downtime. Uh, So the cost of data, Um, you know, for for people who could, they said, oh, we we have put all our forms, Or some of the financial service providers, they were saying, we have put all our forms on uh, on WhatsApp, we have put all our forms on the internet, but the customers were like, well, but it's very costly to download these things, to go online and try to, to log in online for those that were financially or digitally literate, they were saying, but the cost of data is high, and it's true in most of the countries, the cost of data is still high, and then, obviously, the issues around cultural perceptions. Cultural perceptions are still an issue, particularly for rural and also for women. So those are the key issues that then made it not as, I mean, people shifted but the shift wasn't as significant as we had expected or as we all hoped because digital has now come into play. So we thought everybody's going to shift into digital. Now we can move on to the next slide. Now I'm shifting to the third layer, which is um, what were the perceptions of the supervisors and the financial service providers on the risk profile? How did the risk profile change? What, what changed? And um, you know, we kind of like look at how how these changes were different between the, the different stakeholders. So let me start off with um, what was um, what looked the same. Uh, as you can see from this uh, web chat, um, I'll, I'll explain a little bit on the web chat. The green, the outer layer, which is this green line, the green line out outward, these are the scores or the percentages of the supervisors. So, seventy-five percent of the supervisors who were interviewed, who who responded to the survey, they actually thought that the consumer protection risk was really had really gone up. That was like the highest for them from a ranking perspective. Um, and then when you look at uh, when you look at The blue line inside, this blue line inside is actually the, this is now the financial service providers. So the financial service providers are the inside, uh, the the blue line. So one thing to to take note of is that there are differences between the way the the financial service providers and the supervisors perceived risks. But what was um, heartening or at least comforting was that when you look at the three risks, a strategic risk or profitability, we put those two together, cybersecurity and credit risk. These are the three that were ranked, these were ranked by the financial service providers as the highest in the order of strategic followed by credit risk, and then followed by um, cybersecurity. And it's, 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 it's heartening to see that even also when the supervisors were looking at this and ranking this, Those three still ranked high. It's only the the way they were ranked, in that the supervisors did not rank them the highest. For the supervisors, what was the highest was the consumer protection risk and the um, uh, uh, assets and anti money laundering, not asset liability, anti money laundering uh, risks and the know your customer. I mean, definitely thinking about supervisors and the way the authorities would think about this, definitely this would make sense because they're looking at this from an industry perspective. They're looking at this from the consumer perspective to say how well protected are the consumers. So they would necessarily rank these the highest for them. Whereas for the institutions, they were looking mostly internally and saying, how exposed are we? And definitely these three were the ones that they were um, highly exposed. Um, so these were, the, I would say, the differences. But it's heartening to see that, actually, um, even though there is a slight difference, the perceptions in general are the same. The only areas where there are differences is the, the anti-money laundering and the consumer protection. But as you can see, um, 27% of the respondents for the financial service providers, they still thought actually uh, anti-money laundering was an issue in terms of the risk profile. So this this is something that we we, we needed to flag out. And now the issue was, uh, okay, now if this is the risk profile, what do we do about this? So we're moving on now to Uh, what were our conclusions and recommendations that we posed for the supervisors. So what is it that the supervisors can do? Uh, the first one is 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 because of uh, what I already spoke about earlier on the digital literacy and um, financial literacy. So definitely working with other stakeholders and making sure that there is a key um, a focus on 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 literacy uh, and and how we can promote that and making sure that the supervisory expectations are really clarified to the financial service providers. What are the risk based know your customer. Um, regulations, what changes when I'm now doing everything on the phone? When I'm now sending signatures and allowing signatures to come on the phone, what should change? And what is the supervisor expecting? And uh, just making sure that that's really elaborated and also strengthening the consumer protection networks. In fact, the three countries were already doing something about the consumer protection frameworks, either reviewing, recasting, because the, uh, the 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 consumer protection that was there before, when not as many people were on digital, they were slightly different. So there's need now to almost like upgrade uh, those frameworks. And then establishing the regulatory sandboxes, um, all three countries already had regulatory sandboxes, all three countries, um, uh, Zambia, Rwanda, and Sierra Leone. And I, I believe that this is This is useful. This is essential to make sure that, you know, we can allow for the financial service providers to innovate in in that safe space. And then lastly, creating regulatory environments that will stimulate, um, um, you know, appropriate uh, kind of innovations around, especially like for needs for women or smallholder farmers, something that really promotes um, creation of products that are designed specifically for those groups. Uh, th- so these are recommendations uh, focusing on financial inclusion. What can we do? Because sometimes we fi- we found that even for financial service providers, they would probably have products, and they say those products are for women, but maybe they are not really resolving the traditional barriers that uh, women face. And so we you know we're saying creating environments that actually um, encourage and promote uh, appropriate product innovation. So as we conclude. I would like to uh, focus on the recommendations for financial stability. That's the last slide, yes. So, um, three recommendations, uh, because for the supervisors, yes, they're looking at financial inclusion, but they're also looking at the financial stability of uh, of the whole sector in every country. So, uh, three things that we highlighted, increasing the communication and making sure that there is a lot more uh, sharing of information and dialogue uh, between the financial service providers and the the supervisors, especially on the risks and how the emerging risks are being managed and and kind of almost doing a risk assessment and, and sharing this across the sector, especially during COVID to see how the risk profile is changing in each country. We found that in one country, where this had been done, there was kind of a a closer overlap and a closer alignment in terms of how risks were being perceived. Secondly, I've already alluded to this, um, setting out the supervisor expectations in terms of uh, the rules and the the best practices, especially when it comes to -to non-face-to-face delivery. So what are the regulations and what is it that we should do, um, and and making sure that we, 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 we manage the risk profile. Lastly, enhancing the information gathering, so making sure that the collection of information is useful and is 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 enhanced, not is enhanced, and and the supervisors are actually making a, a, an effort to close the feedback loop at two levels to make sure that even at the level of the financial service providers they are getting the feedback and also at the level of the um, of the general public to make sure that there is effective uh, supervision of these current delivery channels. So really making sure that we are collecting the feedback and using that feedback as part of uh, what we can use to, to enhance and to strengthen the regulatory environment. So these this were our key findings. And I would like to say a, a big thank you to Comic Relief for their support and to all, to most of you who participated in the study and made it a success. Thank you. Over to you, Chinue.
1: Well, thank you very much, Petronella, for sharing the highlights of the publication. So we have limited time today to go through everything in the report. Uh, there is a lot more in the publication itself, and we encourage everyone to take a look. Now, uh, It's our pleasure now to invite our financial supervisors on our panel. Uh, to give their remarks. Um, We have really benefited from consultations with the supervisors represented here um, through an internal webinar and also testing our conclusions uh, with them before we put the final report together. So if we could uh, go in this order to get uh, Mutomboi's remarks, followed by Momo, followed by uh, Valence, uh, that would be great. And I'll just like to invite uh, Mutumboy first. I'd just like to add that Mutumboy and the Securities and Exchange Commission of Zambia uh, have been partnering Toronto Centre in a long term engagement to implement risk based supervision. And that engagement is also, also generously funded by Jersey Overseas Gate. So over to you, Mutumboy. Um,
3: thank you, Chinri. Can you hear me clearly? Yes, we can. Excellent. So maybe I can just start by uh, thanking the Toronto Center for being an all weather partner. And then um, you just mentioned uh, in terms of our long term engagement, I would like to really take this opportunity to thank the Comic Relief and the jay Overseas Aid um, for their generous support um, towards this specific um, and many other uh, um, support that we have received, but this one in particular for its noble cause of um, uh, uh, wanting to tackle uh, financial exclusion and continuously um, seeking to ways of how we can help the financial service uh, providers, the regulators and governments to promote affordable and appropriate financial products and services, especially to the vulnerable groups, um, one of which I belong to being women and uh, of course others use many more. It's an excellent report that we have received very well uh, as Zambia. And thank you for selecting us and maybe also suffices to thank the other two jurisdictions. So for Zambia, we were officially visited by COVID in um, sometime in March, 2020. And um, we immediately went into lockdowns. Um, the stock market was affected um, businesses generally were affected, um, and of course uh, the, the sad developments that pretend everywhere else in, in, in the globe happened to, to us too. We lost lives. Um, regulators like ourselves uh, went into a panic uh, mode. Um, we took uh, a number of measures, uh, issued uh, certain guidance notes and guidelines to just assist the market players uh, in terms of what sort of protocols we felt would be useful. And basically, we were all relying on uh, both national and global health um, uh, protocols of social distancing, working from home. Um, and and, and you know, indeed, as, as has been highlighted in, in, in the findings, um, what turned out very naturally is uh, technology was leveraged by not only the financial services providers, but uh, we ourselves as regulators had to quickly, quickly embrace technology Um, So personally, I was one of those uh, women that had two online banking platforms uh, with two separate banks. Uh, I never used them before COVID. And uh, that's because I I had my own reservations. I just didn't want, I felt like uh, using these platforms automatically just opened you to some level of risk. And I just didn't want to go there, notwithstanding the fact that I work in the financial uh, markets. But that changed almost uh, overnight and uh, I can confirm that we are best friends. So I would like to confirm um, the findings of this study and that I am actually a testament to what pertained uh, on the front of um, the proliferation of technology and uh, online um, uh, digitization as far as Zambia is concerned. And it's correct that um, on the front of Zambia there was a lot of work in progress by the time um, COVID uh, hit, um, I did not in the report, there was recognition of the work by the UN CDF, um, and um, they were working in partnership with the likes of the central bank and the ICT regulator in, in Zambia, uh, basically just um, enhancing uh, mobile money and putting in place uh, the necessary frameworks, um, regulatory frameworks and infrastructure addressing some of the infrastructure challenges that would support that. And most of that work was done prior to 2020. So um, we were found ready. And I think the report um, highlights uh, why there was differences in terms of the trends that were seen. And it's true, it did depend on what was pertaining in most of the jurisdictions. And um, it's also very, very true that um, our, it wasn't surprising that the agents went up uh, contrary to the other two jurisdictions. And that's because COVID found us at a point when indeed one of our big uh, banks that also filters into the rural areas had just launched a very aggressive um, strategy for, agent mo- for for an agent's model. Um, and so that really came in handy. And you did exercise, it did nonetheless exercise a lot of social uh, distances. So it was different from walking into the bank I think the report makes very good observation on that front. Coming back to ourselves as the Commission, uh, we had been chewing even prior to uh, March on, on the thought process of alternative financing for totally different reasons, and most, uh, mostly for reasons of wanting to ensure that the SMEs have access to capital. So in 2019, we were already on this tra- um, journey of um, contemplating the the issue of putting in place a regulatory uh, sandbox. Um, So we were lucky enough, early before the COVID lockdowns, we had gone into a partnership, or just before we we had started uh, our discussions with the UNCDF. And uh, so sometime uh, last year, we partnered with them to develop the regulatory sandbox, which was launched um, this year in March. So we do. Um, we have signaled in a very big way, as uh, the regulator for capital markets, our embracing of innovation. And uh, I think as we were developing the framework, we the the COVID situation created an impetus of uh, how we shouldn't relent. So we're happy we do have um, new products in the sandbox. Basically, the peer peer lending platforms. We do have uh, a crowdfunding platform and also an online trading and investment advisory platform, which is um, all, all innovations that are leveraging on technology. Um, then, China did mention that we have um, a long-term arrangement. So again, COVID found us right in the middle of uh, our development of the risk-based supervision framework. And on hindsight, it was good, because we're then able to factor in some of the things that we were seeing on the ground, uh, on the back of this um, uh, crisis, And uh, again, the report is very much on point um, in terms of um, the, 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 the risks um, that we basically even worried about, and we shall forever worry about going forward. For us, for example, the strategic risk uh, became very eminent because even as we we're doing the pilot around that time, we we're able to see uh, just how uh, the, the pilot uh, candidates were, were really short on that front. And uh, basically, um, what that did it, it gave us the opportunity to uh, tweak our model and uh, emphasize certain things that uh, we experienced during that process. Also, just the aspects of how do you do an inspection um, when 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 there's a lockdown? Um, how do you ensure that services? Uh, products are, are, um, are still being offered, um, even into the vulnerable places. So uh, um, we learned um, a lot of new, no, uh, new normals, we made some mistakes, uh, hopefully we've corrected those. And maybe just um, in terms of uh, summing up, we also learned that um, it's, it's very important with, with the new sort of risks that have also presented, such as your cyber crime, um, cybersecurity and crime risks, your data protection, um, several other ICT-related risks. We have realised that uh, it can't be business as usual in terms of how we regulate. We need uh, supervisory um, technology, regulatory te- technology, to basically um, help us automate some of those processes so that we we don't have to be caught unawares. Um, uh, we were caught unawares. Uh, with the lack of tools and uh, needed to think very quickly. And we do, we have a little bit more clarity of what sort of tools we need, even just for the risk based supervision framework that we've developed now with the Toronto Centre. We do realize that we need to be able to use that even um, in in times when you do have a lockdown, not that we are really anticipating that this becomes, uh, uh, you know, an annual event. so I, I, I think um, maybe just uh, in finally wrapping up, um, the report for us is a very useful uh, pointer to um, just the uh, seven things that um, we need to um, be mindful of and specifically data collection. And I think it's, it's part of the, the three um, points that um, Petronella I think uh, raised. Uh, it's very important for us to be able to disaggregate this data in a way that we can process this information for not just uh, risk management. We would like to also be able to process this information for purposes of having the right policies that will foster a better recovery of our economies. Um, and, and also make sure that we're not leaving anyone behind in terms of how we provide, uh, ensure that in terms of... Uh, Ensuring that everyone is financially included. So once again, I just want to thank the Toronto Centre. Um, your report has found us at a very good time, as I've said. The response division is just at the verge of being launched, and also in the bigger scheme of things, as Zambia, we are just about uh, to launch a uh, to markets um, uh, master plan. And so again, we learned so much in terms of some of the findings that are in this report that we we will do well to factor in. Uh, as we implement our master plan, which is intended to ensure financial inclusion in Zambia. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you Mutamboy uh, for your insights and also uh, giving us a, a look into what is to come in Zambia. And we're really looking forward to the, the fruits of the labor there. Um, so next, uh, let me invite Momo to give his perspective from Sierra Leone. Momo, please.
4: Thank you very much for the um, presentation. I'm completely happy that uh, our face-to-face interaction did not reduce drastically because we are not hurted by the COVID. That was a very good observation. Uh, so I thank you very much, Petronella, for your presentation. And let me also take this opportunity to thank the Twin to Center Research, particularly Twin and Casey. I've been getting you know. Constant discussions again. Permit me also to recognize the presence of uh, the director of Jazzy Overseas Aid. Good afternoon, sir. You're welcome. I am completely gratified to partake in this panel discussion. And on that note, I say, I say greetings to you from Sierra the land of diamond and gold. <laughs> My task here is really to give you recent developments that have taken place in the financial inclusion space and the uh, policies that have been initiated, particularly after the, uh, the TC research. However, I will have to start with uh, developments in the regulatory space because uh, I believe strongly that if financial inclusion is to the foster, then the regulatory environment must be very conducive And therefore, I would like to apprise you of the developments we have done in the regulatory space. In the first place, we have the Other Financial Services Act 2001. It's very, very old. We are amending that. And this act is a parent act for the regulation of non-bank financial institutions, including mobile money, fintechs, financial institutions, microfinance institutions, and the rest. So therefore, we are saying that if we are going to enhance FinTech to operate, mobile monies to operate, let us create a plain level ground and a very conducive atmosphere. That one is, is ongoing. Additionally, we are also reviewing the Payment System Act. Uh, the Payment System Act 2009 is a bit old and uh, considering the dynamic, dynamism in the sector, we think it is very important to update this one, review it so that we can meet the ever increasing challenges that come from the operators, as well the FinTech. You agree with me that the operators are always ahead of regulators, but we try as much as we could as regulators to ensure that we minimize the margin between the thought of the operators and the regulators. In that direction, we have also developed the e-money guidelines uh, it is very close to being rolled out. Before now, we used to have only the mobile money guidelines. And that one was very much restricted to the operations of mobile money. But as I can tell you now in uh the operations, digital operation is now becoming, you know, assimilated by all players. There are now about uh, 14 commercial banks, and more than 10 of them are now, you know, going digital. When uh, mobile money started, you know, the banks thought they consider the mobile money operations operators as competitors, but today they consider them as complement. So uh, they are also going very high. There's also the the development of the agent network guidelines. That one has been ruled anyway. Uh, One of the uh, possible, one of the most important reasons that actually did not allow the mobile money uh, operator to spread very fastly, in Israel was lack of agents. You know, as a result of that, there was a liquidity problem. You get cash, you know, you get uh, uh, virtual cash, you want to cash out and they tell you, no, I mean, we don't have cash. And should you, if you have to buy uh, virtual cash, then there must be the assurance and the confidence that when you want to cash out, it is available. So we have done that one and that one, you know, we have rolled out to the market. As I'm talking to you now, Service providers, particularly commercial banks and my microfinance institutions, are now partnering with agents and sending their partnership agreement with us for approval. Also, we are working very closely with uh, 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 some consultants to develop the money remittances guidelines. The mobile money, you recall the mobile money, actually prohibited a remittance transaction. It only allowed you know inward, but not outward. But now the space is becoming expanded, so we think that is that is a very important uh, uh, step we have to take. And uh, we have almost completed the development and finalization of the USSD regulation. In, initially, the USSD regulation uh, facility was only given to mobile uh, money operators, and then the commercial banks started grumbling. That mobile money operators are monopolizing the use of USSD. So, even all their products, they are only being used with Android phones and where internet facility is. But we have developed that, and we, we have, though we have not, we have not yet, yet rolled it out, but we have started giving you know, uh, facilities together with NATCOM, the National Telecommunication Commission. That is the body responsible for regulating MNOs. The bankers will soon signed an MOU with them, so we are working together. So we have developed, we are almost completed the development of the USSD regulation just to create a plain level ground. And we are not only interested in uh, the service providers, but we are also highly interested in the consumers. Because when you talk about stability, you want the consumers also to have confidence in the system. So uh, we have completed with the help of UNCGF the consumer protection guideline. And these guidelines will address among very many things, consumer complaints, you know, and address those and ensure that there is transparency and fairness in treating consumers. Equally so, I would like to highlight some developments in the payment system. Because here in the Bank of Australia, financial inclusion Though it is a multi-dimensional concept, but it a, you know, it cuts across very many departments in the bank and units. We have a, um, an electronic fund transfer project, which is almost completed. This project will automate all government payments. As I'm talking to you now, before now, government payments we are done manually. When we get requests from Accountant General's office, you know, the uh, from Ministry of Departments, all the payments to government uh, workers and contractors we are done manually. But very shortly, we have gone too far into that. And when we automate it, the digital, the service will will go digital. And we have the Instant Payment uh, Service Project, uh, which uh, is done uh, concurrently with the Bank Bank of Australia, concurrently with the Pan-African Payment System and Settlement. This project is for the West African Monetary Zone, the WAMS Zone, for Sierra Leone, Guinea, the Gambia, Ghana, and Liberia. We have gone too far with uh, implementing it. When once it is completed, uh, transaction among members will be very easy. For instance, a customer in Sweden, we pay a customer in Ghana in Lyon, that is very Lyon. And then the customer in uh, Ghana will receive the payment in cities. So all these barriers, you know, that we want it should be reduced. And also we have the, we have almost, we have now, Completed the automation of the single the treasury single account. That is a, a, you know a, 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 an account a port where all MDAs you know their accounts pass through. Uh, we have uh, institutions that actually correct, collect revenue and pay into the Bank of Sweden, uh, TSA treasury single account. It used to be done manually, but automation is almost complete now, so that everything will have to be done you know, automatically. So that when an institution deposits a funds, a revenue into that account, there's always a percentage that that institution will have to get, that one, everything we have to be done automated is about 10%. And the 90% now remains with the government of Sierra Leone. Uh, this one is a bit a long awaited uh, project, but I'm happy to announce that we will launch it, if not in the first quarter of 2022, it will be in the second quarter of 2022. That is the development of the national switch. Uh, it's a problem to us in Leone as we I speak now. All service providers do not speak the same language, meaning that you want to transfer funds from orange money to sale money, it's not possible. Banks uh, to mobile money is not possible. But with the, um, with the development, with the procurement of the uh, national switch, all transactions will be routed through the switch. It will be very very simple. In fact, that will increase uh, digitization and the number of uh, in the proportion of access to finance. What is also very interesting about this project in the uh, installation of the switch is that there are other components like uh, the installation of the point of sales. Because we only did not ask the vendor to you know to provide us the switch, but we also want POSs, particularly to the rural communities, as we really intend. To ensure that financial inclusion reaches the last mile. We have also gone too far with the government of Sierra Leone to uh, embark on uh, digitization of government payments. The African Development Bank is working with us, is funding this project, and we have gone too far with it. We believe that we have tried severally to ensure that the, the, to digitize, the uptake of digitization is really, really ha- enhanced. But because the gov- we have not got the government buying in, it has been, you know, uh, improving at a snail pace. So now we want the government to start the ball rolling. I will believe that the government being the largest or the greatest player in the sector, when once the government, you know, takes the lead, everybody will, you know, follow the bandwagon. So we are starting with the G to P payment and then the P to G payment. Then we can now go to G to B payment and B to G payment. That one is almost, you know, uh, very nearly to the conclusion. In addition to that, we have been working closely with uh, FinTech, uh, with uh, UNCDF, in the development of FinTech in Sierra Leone. So, what we did was to organize what we call FinTech uh, uh, competition challenge. We did the first one, uh, we had so many applications. The purpose, the aim of this was actually to identify FinTech companies in Sierra Leone. And to assist them develop, so with uh, UNCDF we launched the first competition. We had so many applications, and two winners came up. We had, we gave them some, you know, some capital to as a starting, you know, uh, 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 capital. So what we did was when they, they developed their, their products to a level, we now asked them to enter the Bank of Saudi sandbox. But I'll come to that one. And uh, this last year, we did also the second uh, FinTech challenge. And we also got the winners. But we were a bit uh, held back, you know, by the COVID. But very shortly, we enter the box. And the Bank of Australia also developed the sandbox over three years ago. It is only that uh, the development has been very slow. I think that was why, in fact, we did not pick it up. But we are on we are we are I mean we have been uh, we have been applauded for that. we are one of the first around the you know the uh, West African zone to do that. So uh, the first cohort we have got two graduates. the first cohort we have got two graduates, they have graduated and we are going to give them license. The second uh, generation of the sandbox, we have got twelve applications. we have allowed them to do presentations, we have evaluated them all. And they are going to they will start they are going to enter the box very shortly. But we made a bit small modifications on the first one. On the first cohort, we allowed them to operate on a cohort basis. And there were problems because some will enter together and other they were not strong enough you know, to continue with the same time frame. So this time around, we are going to allow players, uh, participants to enter the box based you know, uh, on ongoing basis.
1: Thank you for that fascinating look. Uh, Sorry to just jump in, but I I think uh, you've really given us a good sense of of the uh, regulatory infrastructure that's really coming into place to support financial innovation and financial uh, inclusion. Uh, I'm just wondering whether uh, we could uh, go to Valence and then we can maybe uh, pick up some other points as well. Thank you very much.
2: Thank
5: you. Thank
1: you very much. Thank you, Moment. Thank you. Go ahead.
5: And uh, I want to start my remarks by appreciating this work done by the Toronto Centre Research Team, but also to appreciate the Comic Reef and uh, Jersey Overseas Aid for financing this study. It's a very good study uh, because it helps us as policymakers to understand the lessons that we can pick from this COVID-19 crisis. As you know, as we get out of this crisis, like other crises have been, one of the questions that policymakers around the world, including developing countries that will be asking is what lessons do we learn from this crisis? And really this study helps us to get ingredients or answers to that question. How can we build better? How can we build a resilient financial sector that is inclusive? so that we prepare for future crises like this. I know we are not yet out of COVID. You've heard about COMIC, the new variant. But before that, uh, just to give you an update about Rwanda's COVID-19 situation. Of course, we were affected by COVID-19, and uh, uh, it affected the first case was registered in March 2020, like uh, our colleagues in Zambia. So we lost around 1,341 people. And we implemented, the government implemented around two total lockdowns in the country and partial lockdowns to restrict the movements and the spread of the virus. And at the onset of the virus, one of the measures taken by the central bank but also other government agencies was to encourage people to adopt contactless transactions and asking financial service providers to invoke the digital, you know, services that they had in order to engage their customers because we knew that uh, these would be carriers you know physical meetings would be would offer room for the spread of the virus so and that paid off because uh, as we speak we've seen really with increased vaccination rates I think uh, the vaccination vaccination rates in Rwanda is around over 60 percent which is a good thing with increased vaccination rates and uh, other measures taken by government, we've seen, really, we've seen improvements and the uh, infection rates have really gone down, fatality rates have gone down and economic activities have resumed. And good to note that actually businesses have resumed, resumed the payment, including small businesses, SMEs have resumed, resumed the payment. That's the message that we get from financial service providers. You know, uh, one of the measures taken by the central bank in March last year was to advise financial service providers to be flexible with their clients. Uh, I mean, to provide them payment moratorium and to be flexible because uh, the pandemic was, you know, had depressed their incomes. So we are happy to note that uh, as COVID-19 had kind of reduced uh, uh, the, you know, we'll see improvement in the, in business performance. We see improvement in the you know servicing of loans, including small businesses have started servicing their loans. So there's really good improvement. But let me go back to this study. This study is very important and uh, it really uh, brings out a key you know finding that uh, Covid nineteen offered one silver lining, which is uh, actually accelerating digital financial services. You know everything about Covid nineteen was very bad. But on that one, I I think I appreciate that really it pushed us to run where we're working. In Rwanda, we had a cashless agenda. The country had dreamt of you know doing away with cash and you know adopting digital financial services, digital payments. And we were, you know, we were doing something, but with COVID-19, we had to run. So uh the, the study points out that in Rwanda, really mobile money was a game changer was the the main factor that actually uh, drove the uh, non-face you know transactions non-face-to-face transactions Uh, that speaks to the uh, the the situation even before COVID-19 the survey we did in 2019 showed us that uh, 62 percent of Rwandans adult Rwandans actually had a mobile money wallet they were able to use mobile money you know, transactions. And out of that 30%, they are using only that mobile money for uh, their financial management. Only that, not working with microfinance or banks, only mobile money. So when the uh, the COVID-19, you know, striked us, people had already started, you know, knowing mobile money, knowing that they can keep money on their wallets, send money on their wallet. One thing that really we saw increasing accelerating was, Using that mobile money wallet to transact to buy goods. Initially, before COVID, they would keep money on their wallets, send money to each other, but see, on a small, to a small extent, be able to transact and buy things from merchants using their mobile money wallet. Now, when COVID 19 came, when governments guided people and advised people to use uh, you know, contactless you know, transactions, then people start, started using mobile money to transact. And one of the measures put in place by government was really to work with payment service providers and to ask them to waive some fees on these digital payments for a period of 90 days. And they are very cooperative, you know the payment service providers. So with you know the costs being zero and with the, the, the citizens already knowing mobile money, then it was so easy to switch from physical cash to uh, mobile money. So that was very important. Now, uh, there have been new developments after the study. Uh, you know, we were concerned that after COVID-19 is kind of decelerating, people would go back to their old ways of physical transactions, lining up in banks to withdraw their money. But, uh, and then we are concerned that once the payment service providers reinstate the, the fees, then people would be concerned and go back to the old ways. But guess what? That's not what we are seeing. We are seeing a behavior change. We are seeing people embracing the advantages of digital payment services. And we are seeing the momentum increasing instead of reducing. Now, in September, uh, the payment service providers introduced the fees now. And we are seeing that uh, people are not so much sensitive to it but see, early, you know, in October, the central bank also introduced a new policy. As you know, non-bank uh, e-wallet, you know, ma- mobile money uh, providers—that's mobile MNOs—they are—they are—they are, they are obliged to keep their trust accounts in financial service, you know, in banks, and the banks were paying interest on the trust account. And to recoup that money they were paying on the trust account, they would charge on the push and pull transactions. When you pull your money from the, the bank account, your mobile wallet, then they charge you. But then the central bank said the banks can stop you know, paying interest on trust accounts. At the same time, stop charging on the pull and push, uh, push transactions. So, by that policy, a person doesn't need to line up in a bank. All you need to is you sit in your home, in your sitting room, use your mobile wallet, get money from your bank, pull it to your wallet and transact. So that has been a game changer and has really facilitated people to, to use. Now, pe- very many people with a mobile wallet, really, they don't see any reason as to why they should line up in a bank. Of course, there's an issue of awareness and they don't say uh, the, the recommendation on digital awareness Really doesn't what is not uh, uh, reasonable in what it is. We've been doing conducting digital financial literacy campaigns for the last three years. I don't know whether patronal you had you had this information. Actually, we are running the fourth one next year in January, and the information we are giving to our people is to equip them with knowledge on the digital financial products and services out there, and awareness around the issues on online fraud, digital footprints, and cautioning them not to overborrow. We don't want an indebted population. So we are cautioning them about not to overborrow. And we are teaching them about their security features, how to secure their PIN account, how to safeguard their personal information, how to avoid spam and, uh, and phishing techniques, all those things. Another thing we are doing, with regard to consumer protection, uh, late this year, I think it was around September, the, the government passed a law on financial consumer protection. And subsequent to that passing of that law, the central bank established a full department in charge of market conduct and consumer protection. So that department really is actually developing tools to, uh, to get uh, you know, consumer complaints direct from the consumers of digital financial services. So, uh, this really shows how much we are preparing ourselves to protect our, our citizens as they embark on these digital financial services. Now, on the sandbox, uh, similar to our colleagues in Sierra Leone, I don't know whether you, you had an, an idea on what we are doing with the sandbox. Uh, this year, the Central bank uh, passed the, uh, the regulation on the regulatory sandbox. and uh, as I speak, we are establishing an operational framework for the regulatory sandbox. And our aim really is to work with innovators, the fintechs, people coming with ideas on how they can use technology to help us meet our goals in in terms of improving efficiency of financial services. In terms of taking finances, uh, in t- taking financial inclusion to the excluded, uh, you alluded to a very important point on uh, the potential of digital financial services helping to accelerate financial inclusion. Now, you mentioned about the preconditions, and I agree with you. Unless if we establish the preconditions, then uh, digital financial services w- will not help us to achieve the inclusion we want. Yes, we need financial education. We, in order to entrust people to have trust in these digital financial services, we need to equip people with the infrastructure the technology the phones the womens don't have access to phones and technology as, uh, as their main counterparts so all those things i agree with you and I appreciate the recommendations of of the report now another thing and the two points to come to my conclusion that we are doing to promote uh, financial inclusion and really uh, is that we are running an, a, an electronic data house. That's a reg tech, a kind of system that helps the central bank to get information uh, in a real-time manner from uh, regulated financial uh, service providers. Now, this helped us. It's not yet perfect. A system has been developed, and we are at the stage of data cleaning. But ultimately, this system is will be helping us to fetch information from financial service providers without going to their premises. So, and it will be real time. And this will ensure us getting that, uh, you know, quality data and that is not subject to manual intervention, but also getting data in real time and being able to do effective supervision and, and, and being able to do the right thing. Now, the last point, we have a key project that we are running and uh, I heard that uh, colleagues from Sierra Leone they are implementing the same project we are implementing a switch a retail interoperability switch uh, it's a switch that is going to enable interoperability between different payment service providers and with that switch in place uh, a person with a mobile wallet with a certain uh, uh, M, you know mno company will be able to transact to an, an, with another person having a, a mobile wallet with another telecom company he'll be able to transact from one mobile wallet in a thermocom company with a person having an account in a bank, a person having an account in a microfinance. So it's a suite that is going to sit in between those payment platforms from provided by different institutions and enable people to transact and send money from whichever platform they're working with to another person in a, using another platform. So that's a, a project that is underway. The infrastructure is being established. The scheme rules are being fine-tuned by different players. And uh, that's very key. Last, the central bank this year is updating its RTGS to enable a 27 uh, 27 hours, 24-7 transactions. Uh, Initially, uh, I think our RTGS would enable transactions to run up to, I think, 6 PM. But what we want now is to enable interbank transactions to happen 24 seven. And as I speak, that, uh, that project is running. And with those projects, we think uh, together with financial literacy, working with the, people, with the people to educate them what's there for them and uh, the benefits of digital payment services, we think we'll be more prepared when COVID-19 comes in uh, maybe 50 years, but I hope it doesn't come back. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Valence. And I apologize, we are a little bit over time, but I think we have been virtually rewarded with a look uh, uh, into the upcoming, many upcoming initiatives in the three countries. So thank you again to our panelists. And uh, bringing this webinar to a close, I would like to invite Pang Hong Lim, Senior Director at Toronto Centre in charge of supervisory guidance, uh, who is overseeing this research project to give his short closing remarks. Thank you. Pang Hong.
6: Thank you uh, for moderating such an interesting session Uh, we've heard a lot from all the three panelists as well as Petronella providing the uh, the initial uh, base. And Jose for setting the stage for this webinar in the first place, it is my honor to provide brief closing remarks. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought about disruptions about public health so financial services and financial inclusion, as you have heard from the webinar the present research examined the impact of the pandemic on financial services delivery in Rwanda, Sierra Leone, and Zambia, and implications for financial sector risks and financial inclusion. We see financial stability and financial inclusion as two sides of the same coin, and according to IMF, good supervision is key to the synergy between the two. The speakers provided thoughtful comments that reinforces this, and on behalf of Toronto Centre, I would like to thank them. We particularly appreciate that uh, Mutomboi commented that the report is very much on point and provides a good pointer to certain things for supervisors to be mindful of. Momo reaffirmed regulation and inclusion go together and Sierra Leone's continuing commitment to digitalization. And Valence noted this research helps policymakers to understand crisis better and provide guidance for supervisory authorities, especially bringing out the key finding that COVID-19 accelerated digitalization. And then updated the good news that people are more accepting of using more digital services which is a game changer for sub-saharan africa we are very grateful for the support of the regulatory and supervisory authorities in rwanda sierra leone and zambia which greatly informed the research report on their policy and supervisory work done to face the disruption caused by the pandemic the involvement of the financial sector players The survey also provided valuable insights into the steps they had taken to continue to serve their potentially excluded customers. Once again Toronto Centre is grateful to Comic Relief and Jersey Overseas Aid for making this research possible under their program Branching Out Financial Inclusion at the Margins to promote financial inclusion to Rwanda Sierra Leone and Zambia. We look forward to our continuing ongoing collaboration with these countries as well as with Comic Relief and Jersey Overseas Aid. Thank you everyone for for tuning into this webinar. I hope you enjoyed it. Goodbye.
1: Thank you very much, Pang Hong. Uh, Thank you to our excellent speakers once again, and a good day to all of you.